So hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Beyond the Cover. I'm your host, John Robb, joined here by my always wonderful co-host, Jeff Ayers. Jeff, how you doing? Doing pretty well, uh, considering. That's true. Considering that coronavirus 2020 is upon us right now when we are recording this uh, interview, uh, we want to remind everybody, of course, that all of our shows are brought to you by Suspense Magazine, so visit suspensemagazine.com. got a lot of great new episodes that are up and some great ones coming up, including the one that we're going to have tonight, and also Kensington Books, so make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information on what they got going on. So tonight's guest, we are going to be talking with author Joel Rosenberg, and we're going to be talking about his book, The Jerusalem Assassin. Uh, great international thriller, Jeff, and I think you know it has a, has a little bit of uh, today in it, I guess, if you want to call it that. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, but honestly, all of his novels have a real great... He, he's, he's like a psychic, so I definitely look forward to talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we're not going to call him psychic Joel Rosenberg. We'll call him author Joel Rosenberg. But Joel, thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing? How did I know you were going to say that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Look, yeah, I, uh, U.S. News and World Report years ago, my second novel, uh, which was called The Last Days, U.S. News called me a modern Nostradamus, and I've been living that down for uh, most of the last 20 years. I'm not a psychic. I'm not a clairvoyant. I don't call Miss Cleo in the middle of the night uh, and uh, and get my plot ideas. But, yeah, I am. But you got a hell of an intuition. Case yeah. yeah. Well, maybe... Yeah, he's a hell of an intuition. But, I mean, you know, because it's good because, you know, a lot of authors and a lot of the great authors are all always kind of tuned into the same thing. They can kind of see the world or see things in a different way, and that's how they kind of make their stories go. And that kind of separates the great from the good. And with you being in the great category, being able to kind of do that, um, Let's talk about the Jerusalem assassin here and what you got going on in this one. Well, thank you. And actually, you know, for those uh, listeners who may not be familiar with me, um, maybe we could take a moment and just step back to my first novel and, and why people say Absolutely. that. Absolutely. You're right. Political thrillers are different. Obviously, science fiction, you're not trying to write about what might happen tomorrow or the next day. You're, you're, you know, or people who write different genres aren't trying to make people feel like, wow, this thing could happen. But political thrillers is almost unique in that sense that, you know, the closer you are, it's got to be fiction. It's, you know, you're making it up. But if it feels real or if it even portends what might be coming, that, that draws people. So, all right, my first uh, political thriller I began writing in January of 2001, okay? That date is important because... The first page of that novel, which was called The Last Jihad, the first page puts you inside the cockpit of a jet plane that's been hijacked by radical Islamist terrorists, and it's coming in on a kamikaze attack mission into an American city. Now, that was almost nine months before September 11th, uh, 2001, but that's how my novel, my first political thriller I ever wrote, uh, that's how it begins. It happens to be uh, the attack site is Denver, not New York, Washington, or Pennsylvania. Uh, but it leads from uh, that book, you know, the plot leads from that kamikaze attack at the beginning to my fictional American president uh, declaring war on Saddam Hussein and removing him from power. But that's the arc 
of the first novel, The Last Jihad. I was finishing it uh, just a couple chapters away from the end on the morning of September 11, 2001. I was living at the time with my wife and kids in Washington, D.C. We were about 15 minutes away from Washington Dulles Airport, where at that moment, while I was writing the book that morning, that beautiful Tuesday morning, uh, Flight 77 was being hijacked from, from the airport next to me, flown over our house and into the Pentagon. And when the last jihad released uh, in November of 2002, you know, people had never heard of me. They had never, obviously, they'd never read my books because I hadn't written one. And that last jihad novel became a huge bestseller, number one on Amazon, 11 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. And people kept going, how could you write a novel? Yeah, there's differences from what exactly happened, but it it felt eerily ripped out of out of the headlines well you've even predicted uh the death of yasser arafat as well in one of your later books too right so that was the next year with the the last days uh that uh novel um got that's when u.s news report uh, u.s news and world report did a little story saying you know about the sort of uncanny nature of my previous novel now i've got a convoy driving into Gaza uh, as part of the peace process when the convoy is attacked. That's how the last day's novel began. And six days before the book released, a U.S. diplomatic convoy driving into Gaza as part of the peace process was attacked. And then U.S. News wrote, and watch out Yasser Arafat, Rosenberg offs you on, I don't know, page 37 or whatever it was. And 13 months later, Arafat was dead, and it felt like it was happening all over again. So this was a, you know, you can't plan for these things. I wasn't trying to actually literally predict the future, but my plots were eerily similar to the sort of the trajectory of events, and that's, that's what sort of put my novels on the map early on. Well, I think somewhere out there, there's somebody who's reading your books and going, okay, now I go. I have to go kill this person and go do this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh, I, oh, I, you know, I hope not. Now, in, in both of those cases, uh, yeah, the books came out before. Um, the event. Well, you know, yeah, I guess, yeah. I hope not. I, I'm not trying to give people ideas. I, I, my theory is that of these course. are crazy, sick, uh, evil people, and they don't read English uh, novels but you know (laughs) well uh, could you talk a bit about the latest book jerusalem assassin and also who is marcus Riker? talk a bit about his character sure he's pretty cool yeah sure so i've I've taken a different uh, journey than a lot of thriller writers and you know for better for worse you you can decide and your listeners can decide whether uh, you know i sort of went on the right trajectory my first five novels all had the same character and then I wrote a series of trilogies, and, and, and now my, my last three books, including the new one, is a totally new character, Marcus Riker. And I don't, it's not a trilogy, but I haven't decided how long. Most thriller writers write um, you know, a franchise character. You've got you know, James Bond, Jason Bourne, um, Jack Ryan. I guess they're all J names. Right. Um, Scott Horvath. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. So Marcus uh, Riker... Uh, breaking away from the J name. But um, Marcus is a former uh, Marine. Well, I guess you're always a Marine. He's a Marine. He 
uh, in the first novel, uh, which is called The Kremlin Conspiracy, and then the next one is The Persian Gamble, and now The Jerusalem Assassin. Now, we, we meet uh, Marcus Riker in, in The Kremlin Conspiracy. We meet him uh, when he's in college, actually, and he sees uh, 9-11 unfolding on his television, and he goes the next day to the Marine recruiting station, and, and he joins up. And uh, he, we, we, I take you to combat in um, Afghanistan. Later, he serves in Iraq. And when he comes home eventually, back to the States, um, he decides to join the United States Secret Service, also marry his college sweetheart. And, uh, and, that, and we take, I take you on a journey. Now, in that particular novel, you're also meeting uh, the son-in-law of the uh, president of Russia, and so we're watching these two characters. I toggle back and forth throughout the book until you see these two characters converge. And the reason is because they're planning to assassinate the president of Russia for reasons that we're not talking about that book right now. But Marcus, uh, is a, <laughs> when, I, when you meet him, uh, you meet him young, and, and I, I sort of bring you along so you get the backstory. Again, most novelists will give you the backstory on the 20th book, you know, after you've sort of hopefully fallen in love with the guy. But in my case, I decided to do it. And, uh, and so we're seeing him out of office, out of – he's not working for the U.S. government in book one. Eventually, for reasons I won't get into right now, he, he does get recruited by the Central Intelligence Agency. And in this particular novel, uh, The Jerusalem Assassin, um, he has a cover in the U.S. government. Technically, he's working for the Diplomatic Security Service, DSS. That's sort of the State Department's version of the, of the U.S. Secret Service, protecting uh, ambassadors, the Secretary of State, and so forth. So all his friends, his family, think he's working for DSS. He's actually working for the CIA. Uh, but as the novel unfolds, um, an American president is planning to unveil and roll out his new... Middle East peace plan between the, to, to make peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. However, a series of senior U.S. officials involved in, dra- in drafting the plan, they start getting assassinated early in the book. And this rattles the president. He's not sure, you know, he wasn't expecting this. He, it's an unknown terror group uh, that's taking credit for this. We've never heard of them before. And, he's, and he thinks, well, maybe this is the wrong time to release this peace plan. But just at that moment, when he's thinking of not releasing the plan, he gets a back-channel message, uh, actually through Marcus Riker. Uh, and the message is from the Saudi government. The Saudis tell the American president, listen, we're not a big fan of all the details in your peace plan. However, we're ready to explore peace with Israel. So, Mr. President, if you'll invite us to Jerusalem, if you invite the crown prince or the king to Jerusalem for a high-profile summit with the Israeli prime minister and you, Mr. President, hosting, will come. And the president is electrified by this idea of a, of a Saudi-Israeli peace plan. That would, be, that would be huge and historic. So he tells his team he wants to do it. Last point. The, the, the security team around the president says, Mr. President, with all respect, are you insane? There's some, there's some terror group hunting our people. You can't go to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the most dangerous and volatile piece of real estate on the planet, and go have a peace summit 
with the Israeli prime minister and the Saudi leader. And now, but the president does it anyway and puts Riker in charge of securing the summit. And now the countdown is on and all the actors are converging towards Jerusalem. Yeah, that, uh, that's cool. You know, how you put it is, I mean, it, it almost is like you're watching the trailer of the movie. Um, and that's, and when you're reading the book, how hard was it for you to keep the pace? Because it really gets going kind of when it starts hitting that 96-hour kind of mark. And that's kind of when the pace, like, I guess, when it starts flying even faster. So hyper accelerates, yeah. Did you, yeah. Did yeah. you have a challenge with that? Because, I mean, you know, that, that, that's a quick pace to kind of go from zero to 60, and then you launch you to 180. You're right. Well, that's, that's it's always a challenge for a political thriller writer because you, you, you are, look, you're trying to thrill. You know, if you, right. you can say whatever you want, but if, if, that, if your reader's heart rate isn't going at 150 and they're up all night because I've got short little chapters, cliffhanger endings of each chapter, and, you know, you're supposed to – each chapter is supposed to be like a, a Pringles potato chip. You can't eat just one. And That's so a good way to put it. I've never four, heard that before. Five, I've never heard anybody say it like that. Well, uh, maybe good. I, I, I like too much junk food. I don't know. But <laughs> I, I want people cursing me on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook at 6 o'clock in the morning going, you have got to be kidding me. I've got to go to work. I've got to go to school. Of course, now they don't have to say that. But, uh, and you, you kept me up all night. That and is, you're like, that thanks. Exactly. That tells me I'm doing something right. Right. That's but you're right. It, it, but you can't keep, usually, depending on the, the, the scenario, it's hard to keep that pace for the entire book. You, you've got to give people time to breathe. So my, so the, the Jerusalem Assassin opens big. You've got, a, you've got a, actually a very uh, horrifying um, uh, uh, terror incident that happens inside a church in Washington, D.C., that you know, it's a church mass, um, you know, mass shooting. That's mm-hmm. the opening, and horrible, and uh, and not something any of us wants to contemplate. Um, but that's how it begins. But you've got to find ways to to build the actual story. Um, and unless you're literally doing, you know, let's say a kidnapping that begins on page one, and you know, it's all over in 24 hours. It's tough to maintain that pace, so you've got to accelerate and then slow it down a bit, uh, and, and then accelerate again. And but I always believe the last, you know, hundred pages or so, you better be flying, and and people better not be able to put that book down, no matter what they got going on in their own life. Right. You want to you want to hit that sweet very good spot. <laughs> you want to hit that sweet spot in the novel. That's yeah. what, that's what I'm hoping because again that's what people that's ultimately what you're going for. You're not trying to yeah. learn primarily about the Middle East. You're not trying to you know learn about radical Islamism. You're not trying to discover all the places you might want to go visit in Jerusalem if you come and visit one day. You, you want to be grabbed by the throat and pulled into an you know an adventure yeah. that you think, my God, I hope that never happens. But whoa! Yeah. And if you do that and leave them breathless, then. Uh, they might pick up another one of your books. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious how you research your novels. And then also, I'm also curious, why do you believe readers enjoy these thrillers with the real-world ramifications? 
Well, those are, yeah, that was a great question. So, um, well, you have to start in my case that I'm a failed political consultant, okay? Um, I worked in Washington. Well, I lived in Washington with my wife and kids for 24 years. The first 10, I worked for a, a range of political leaders, and every single one of those leaders lost, okay? I have a 100% track record of helping people lose to the point <laughs> that my friends started saying, okay, once you pick who you want to work for, could you actually go work for the opponent? Because you, you're, you've got like the kiss of death on you, son, and I don't know that yeah. that's going to be sustainable. So it's kind of like no. the Detroit Lions. Like you can't win them all, but you can lose them all, right? <laughs> yeah. Apparently. Apparently. So, yeah, what, you what I, it, was, it was frustrating, um, but I did learn a lot. And look, most political thriller writers uh, haven't actually ever worked in politics. You don't have to. Right? You're making things up. But one of the benefits for me is I did work for a former prime minister of Israel. I did work for Steve Forbes of Forbes magazine. I did work for some very interesting people that put me in some very interesting places. And it That's let not, me yeah. create novels that felt real, even though they're made up. And, and what happened when the first two became successful, I started getting invited for coffee, for lunch, for dinner by generals. Uh, I remember a, a three-star general at the Pentagon um, invited me to come for lunch. I'd never even been to the Pentagon at that point. He'd been reading the novels and wanted to talk, and we had lunch one day. And he's become a great source. He used to be the, the commander of Delta Force. So that's a pretty wow. good source when you're doing research, and I've never served in the military. I've got two sons who have served in the Israeli military, but I, you know, I, I, I joked with the boys when we moved to Israel, which is where we live now, Jerusalem, I said, boys, I have four, four sons. I said, boys, uh, when we move there, when you get of age, you're going to get drafted in the Israeli military, and you may serve in some very cool and challenging and dangerous units. Dad is old. Dad is fat and blind and, and flat-footed. The only reason the Israeli military will need to uh, you know, draft me is if they need a hostage. So um, <laughs> that's an old Woody Allen line from the, that's a good one. From the Vietnam yeah. War. But it actually is true. Also. So, I, you know, it's been great. And I, I had a former CIA director. Um, after he retired, he, he and his wife contacted my wife and me, took us out for dinner and said, you know, I've been reading your novels for a few years. Um, let's get to know each other. And, and that has happened on three uh, uh, CIA directors now. Um, the, the Vice President of the United States, uh, Mike Pence, uh, I met him uh, because he and his wife were reading the novels back when he was in Congress, before he became governor of Indiana, before oh, okay. he became the second most powerful man on the planet. So we have lunch regularly, uh, even as, as the VP, Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, was on the Intelligence Committee. I met him because he was reading my novels when he was in Congress. Who knew? that he would become one of those CIA directors that reads my novel, and now, of course, Secretary of State. So answering your question, the research has gotten a little bit easier because doors have opened that I had not anticipated. Some very interesting people. The King of Jordan became a reader of my novel and invited my wife and me to come for five days, all expenses paid, to Amman Jordan to get to know him and all his senior generals and political advisors that was crazy and i've wow. continued to see him over the years now the crown prince of saudi arabia 
has, is reading my novels uh, and has invited me to come twice to get to know him. Now, he's a very controversial figure, but he is reading the uh, novels, yeah. and uh, especially this one, The Chinese yeah. Assassin, is about a Saudi crown prince who's considering making peace. Now, it's fiction. I'm not saying that the real crown prince is ready to you know, come to my hometown of Jerusalem and make peace, but how many novelists uh, get to actually go to those palaces, spend hours and hours and hours talking uh, with that crown prince or the president of Egypt or the crown prince of the United Arab Emirates or the prime minister of Israel or whatever, but I've had those opportunities. I, I'm fascinated. I don't think that I deserve it, but, I'm, but I certainly use every opportunity to incorporate what I'm learning into my work. That's amazing. Yeah. That's what you call some real-world experience right there. <laughs> Absolutely. It now, is, and it, you know, I didn't have to work in government. I actually, you know, true. my guy's always lost, but, but it is fascinating. Uh, President George W. Bush is, is currently reading the series. He's been sending me these nice handwritten notes. Uh, like, you know, I don't really write. Well, I didn't set out to write for world leaders, obviously. Uh, there's five million copies of my novels in print. I'm writing for the average, you know, the one, you know a wonderful person who doesn't have the extra time and money to read a novel, but if you, if you grab their attention, they think, you know, all right, I'm going to give this a shot. Yeah. But now that these folks are reading it, boy, it really steps up your game because how do you hold the attention of a current or former president or king, right? Now these guys know. They know what their life is like. They know worst-case scenarios. And you've got to write a, a scenario that's chilling enough, that's plausible, but it's fiction. But how do you hold the attention of a, a king or a president or a prime minister? And that is an added challenge, and I'm enjoying trying, but it puts a lot of pressure on the process. <laughs> well, you know, you, you had said before that you had the Bennett and McCoy novels, and that was where the last Jihad series was. And then you did right. a couple trilogies with um, uh, the 12th Man, the 12th, what is it, the 12th uh, Iman, Iman. Iman series? Right. Right. And then the third Target series. So now we're back into Marcus Reichen, and you're not sure how far this is going to go. I'm just curious, like, when you, what are you exploring when you're starting a new series? I, I mean, because, you know, you're, it's always the same kind of basic concept. You know, it's all the same kind of international thriller, CIA kind of thing. So is it that you want to explore a new character in a different way, a different kind of, um, different kind of, I guess a different kind of agent in a way that would do something, uh, you know, more international or more or more, just more different. What is the reason for wanting to change the characters and, and sure. explore that? Well, the first, uh, well, that, so yes, to answer your question as quick as possible, yes, I have enjoyed um, picking a character from a different angle, building that character, and taking him or her through. Um, some interesting scenarios. Um, but now I'm considering the possibility of building a franchise character. I, you know, I'm, I'm this 14, we're 14 books in. Um, I haven't done that. Uh, commercially, that may have been the wrong decision, but I've loved writing every other novel. But the first one, as an example, the last Jihad series, that was a character, John Bennett. Uh, that was a Wall Street strategist uh, who gets recruited to work as a senior advisor to the President of the United States 
and a whole series of horrible things happen over five books. But, you know, when you think about that, um, when I started that series, I, I didn't know the commander of Delta Force. I hadn't ever, you know, served in the military. I didn't know CIA agent. So I was, um, I'd worked for Steve Forbes, uh, who's a, you know, a top Wall Street uh, strategist and, as well as writer and, and uh, magazine editor. Um, I had worked for a prime minister of Israel. I had, so I was writing something, not that I was, but that something I knew um, in this John Bennett character. But over time, if he doesn't have the skill set of the CIA or Secret Service or whatever, you start to run out of options that are plausible. You mentioned a series I did. This is the one that was read by King Abdullah of Jordan uh, because it happened to be about people trying to kill the King of Jordan um, and blow up his palace, but he invited me anyway. Uh, but that was a series um, about uh, a New York Times foreign correspondent who gets drawn into these you know, crazy scenarios as things unfold over three books. Again, it was fascinating. I loved doing that. But you can't create a New York Times foreign correspondent that's going to go on and, you know, be in an, a high-speed, deadly adventure on every book. It's just not plausible. I don't know. There's Jessica Fletcher. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so, um, so anyway, this I knew two things when I started this new series with Marcus Rucker. Uh, one, I wanted him to be a former – Secret Service agent, in, in that I wanted him to have skill sets, um, that, that, and, and a former Marine, of course, as well. I wanted him to have those skill sets, but I also wanted him to be in a, in a dark place in his life. So point one, Secret Service, former. Point two, I wanted him to be a widower. I don't know why. I just wanted somebody who was vulnerable and flawed and not in the, the peak of his life, but in sort of... In a, in a place of crisis, and, and, and those two thoughts were the only two things I wrote down in my notebook. I began to explore, well, who is this person, and how does he get drawn back into a life that he was done with, um, and, and an even more dangerous life than he had, even though, um, as he says in, in the first book, I've spent my entire life protecting my country and its leaders, and I wasn't able to protect the people I love closest to me. Wow. That's pretty damn amazing. I hadn't intended uh, no, that. Maybe, or maybe you just drifted <laughs> off and you're... Oh, no, you know, no, 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 no. <laughs> it was Jeff's turn to talk. I was just waiting for him. <laughs> oh, no, and I, and I was just... I was, and then I, I think he just drifted. So. I think he was just drifting with the story like, this is nice. I, I, I was speechless, and uh, John can tell you that's that's rare. Um, for him, that never happened. Anyway, <laughs> that's true. I'm never speechless. That's, that's never happened. Um, I'm wondering how does your faith manifest in your novels? Yeah, so I'm uh, an interesting blend, right? I'm Jewish on my father's side. My dad was born and raised Brooklyn, New York, first generation. His family were Orthodox Jews that escaped out of Russia. That's a that's a cool story, which I'll write a novel about someday. But uh, so that's my dad's side. My mom is English, Methodist, Wasp, Daughters of the American Revolution. Uh, they were sort of an animal marriage when they got, uh, you know, they're really from different worlds. Uh, she's from a small town, and like I said, Protestant. Um, and, but they were both agnostic when they met and married. Anyway, they eventually uh, became evangelical Christians, 
And in time, as I grew, I decided that uh, Jesus was the Messiah and I was going to follow him. And so I'm an evangelical as well, as is my wife and our sons. So it's interesting with a name like Joel Rosenberg. Uh, I mean, I was with President Trump uh, last year, and the first question he asked me, he says, wait, the vice president just told me that you're an evangelical. Are you an evangelical, Rosenberg? I said, I am. He goes, but Rosenberg, that's Jewish, isn't it? I said, it is. He goes, I don't get it. How can you be Jewish and believe in Jesus? That was the first conversation I've ever had with an American president in the Oval Office, and it started out on faith. So I enjoy talking about these things, and I try to weave some of it into my novels. Now, they're not um, – you know, some of them um, – I'll go back to my point. They have to thrill, right? I'm not trying to preach, but I am – to me, faith is important. And what intrigued me about the Tom Clancy novels back in the day, which I loved, what, what I loved about those were they were so well-written and they're so interesting. But I at least thought, you know, Jack Ryan is dealing with life and death every moment of every day. But neither he nor anybody that's around him ever thinks, well, when I die, what happens to me? Like, isn't that a thing? Like, should I be worried about that? Should I be? They never had any spiritual questions. And, uh, you know, that's true. Many people don't. But I do. And I think faith is important, especially when it comes to life and death. I think these these issues matter. So, look, I've had the characters. My main character in one of the series was a Muslim. Uh, nominal, admittedly, but uh, he wasn't radical, and he was working for the CIA, David Shirazi in the 12th Imam series. So, uh, so I've had characters of all kinds in my books, uh, and most of my lead characters are not Christians, but, but there's a spiritual journey in all of them, some more explicit, some less. Um, uh, Marcus Riker is a Christian, but he's not particularly outspoken about it, but it affects his life and it affects his decisions. And I've used that in a new series uh, because Marcus Riker's faith is a, is a restraint on him. He's not an assassin. He's not, generally speaking, somebody who feels comfortable with killing people just because that's the next bad guy in front of him. He, but he has a responsibility, he has a job, and he has to make ethical, moral decisions. And so his being a Christian is actually a challenge for him. I mean, not about what he believes, but about how it, how it plays out um, now that he's been recruited into the CIA. Those are two ethical systems, you know, let's say two great tastes that don't always taste great together. Um, right. <laughs> so it, it, it becomes a real part of his character, uh, again, not as like a Billy Graham movie back in the day, but as like informing him and how he deals with challenges, but also... Um, how he makes decisions. Yeah. Ted Decker does okay. a lot of uh, ex- exploration spiritually with his books, or with his characters in his books, too. Um, True. If you've ever read him. So he does that a lot. I, I haven't, yeah. I haven't, but I'm aware of what he's doing. Yeah, and, he does. You know, he does that one a lot. of the things that challenge is, you know, my novels uh, don't have the language or the sexual content that my uh, compatriots on the New York Times list have. And when you add some measure of a spiritual journey, you know, it may be intense, it may not, depending on the book or the series, but those are things that are not done on the New Times list as a, as a general, <laughs> you know, my competitors aren't doing that. So right. it, it, it adds a, a level of, of challenge um, to a genre 
uh, who are readers of a certain genre who almost expect certain things, and I have to over-deliver in one area because I'm not delivering in others. Oh, interesting. interesting. Yeah, I get you. Yeah. I mean, you know, you you can't put everything. You can't put everything into, you know, the only thing that has everything in it is a mole sauce. Everything else you have to kind of edit yourself (laughs) a little bit. (laughs) You know, so. But, um, you know, I mean, mean, as as we are... You know, talking right now in this interview, of course, uh, you know, the coronavirus and everything is going on in the world, and it's taken the world to a place where no one alive has ever seen. I mean, no one's ever seen this, this, this type of containment worldwide before. And, and, no, it's crazy. You know, and, and your quarantine where you are in Jerusalem, like you just said, you had to, you're locked away in a bedroom, right, from your family. I mean, it's I am. I, weird. I, was, I was on the beginnings of that Jerusalem Assassin book tour in the United States, when the world spun out of control and yeah. uh, the Israeli foreign ministry, I'm a dual citizen, by the way. I, I, we've got U.S. and Israeli. And Israeli. Yeah, I, I joke that that means I get to vote twice. It's sort of like living in Chicago. So um, anyway, <laughs> the Israeli government uh, insisted and told everybody in the world who's an Israeli, if you intend to come home, you better come home on the next flight because you know, we may be closing the borders. Yeah. So I jumped on the next flight and came back. But what that means is all incoming people here in Israel have to go into quarantine for 14 days. And as I said to you, as we were just coming on the call before, for me, I thought that just meant I had to stay home for 14 days. And my wife said, no. It means that we're going to be dropping a car off for you at the airport with the keys on the seat. You, we'll wave to you from another car, but you can't hug us. You can't kiss us. You're going to drive that car following us back to Jerusalem and then go immediately through the apartment and lock yourself into the master bedroom, and you can't come out. You can't come out for 14 days. We'll set food and water like, the, like next to the cat's food you know, in front of your door, <laughs> and we love you, and we'll, we'll say hi through the window, and we'll text you. But that's two weeks of, yeah, not, not going to see you. It's strange, and um, yeah. it's a new world. And, it's, and, you know, people asked me as I was starting the book tour for the Jerusalem Assassin, you know, you're supposed to be the Nostradamus. How come you didn't write about a pandemic? And I said, well, I, I think I didn't. That's the next Nobody book. would be reading that book right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, That's you know, true. maybe at the hunt for the people that are responsible for that, but I don't think anybody's going to read right now because um, it's not entertaining. It, it, no. Worst-case scenarios are supposed to be fiction. You're like, oh, thank God that's never going to happen, or I hope right. it never does. But when it's happening and it affects your job, your finances, your family, your health, your grandparents, that's not, that's not funny. That's not interesting. That's not entertaining. And, and I think it's one of the challenges of, of writing thrillers is you can't – people who don't write horror movies, make horror movies or you know or Stephen King if you thought that was actually going to be your life like no right. one what, the scare factor is making you think you know a Michael Myers could happen and yeah well, yeah well right or but you're really saying I hope it never does um, right I hope and, it never does so but that noise that you hear outside could it be you know but like right. it's never happened. It's oh. just one of those things where well, I don't know that noise outside or something to that effect. You know, you go in the water and there are sharks, and Jaws revolutionized you know the going 
into the ocean and the water, and people were scared to death. But that's because there were sharks, and, you know, there's, Michael Myers has never been real, and then that's a little bit different. But I definitely get where, you know, it's coming from because, yeah, it's, you want to read a book to get away from your life. You don't want to read a book to read your life. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so if you think about, you know, that's one of the challenges, though. I think it's the central challenge of writing a political thriller. Because if you're writing the Star Wars series, you know that nobody's ever likely to, you know, get in an X-Wing fighter. So you're safe. You're not going to meet Darth Vader, right? Or if you're writing um, The Lord of the Rings, you're not going to meet Gollum. It's just not going to happen. So you don't have to worry about the world overtaking your scenarios. Right. But political thrillers are very different. Are very much different, much different. So right. now, where's the best place for everyone to find out all your information? Is just your website, joelrosenberg.com? You're right. Or absolutely. Your you can come there, and it goes through. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if you can get yourself to Jerusalem, I can talk you through the through the bar Through the keyhole. Uh, <laughs> yeah. exactly. we, know, we know where you're going to be. Bring, so. <laughs> bring a snack, bring some coffee, because I'm not talking to you unless you bring in food. You know. Um, <laughs> Instead right, of yeah. put, you know how it used to be the old, com. you know, it was the old put 50 cents to keep the phone call going. It's like, hey, if you want to talk more than 10 minutes, I need a ho-ho. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I'd be worried what I would be looking like if I was just sitting here eating ho-hos. So I'm actually eating right. salad, trying to make an advantage but, of it. But uh, You don't have to yeah, eat them, I'm but you can stockpile them and wait for the next virus, and then you're like, nah, I got ho-hos. I'm hoarding ho-hos. That's oh, you're hoarding ho-hos. Now. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Uh, Horton, Horton hoards the ho ho. That's my next Horton novel. Horton hoards the ho ho. Doctor Seuss never <laughs> thought of that one. Exactly. <laughs> well, so, so yeah, where I'm else can they find Twitter, you? Twitter, Instagram. Yeah. I got booted off of Facebook, and we're trying to figure out why we're not. We're hoping it's not political, but we'll get that up and running again. Hmm. Um, I do have an author uh, Facebook page that you can find that Tyndale, uh, my publisher, runs. But yeah, the main site is joelrosenberg.com. I've got a blog where I'm tracking all kinds of uh, geopolitical events and, of course, now coronavirus. So that might be a place to go and, and track in real time And your newsletter, well. you can, people can sign up for your newsletter. Yeah, people can sign up for my author newsletter. So there's a number of ways to sort of stay in touch and uh, track with what I'm doing. Great. That's great. Awesome. Well, Joel, we want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been a fascinating conversation. Um, also, tell your publisher, I think that the Kremlin conspiracy series that you have going on, I love the covers. I think the covers are fantastic. Oh, thank so you. I just thought I'd say that. Yeah, um, there's a great guy, Dean Renninger, who does the covers for us. And I'm telling you, I think yeah. he's the best in the business. I, just I think the Kremlin conspiracy produces. cover is, is a really good pop-out cover. I, just saw, I, just have, I was just like, that's a really thank good you. cover. Yeah. I agree. But, thank you. So, hey, man, well, thank you again so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, again, everybody, the book is called The Jerusalem Assassin. It is the third book in the Kremlin conspiracy series that I just mentioned. It features, of course, Marcus Riker. And uh, the second book, which we didn't mention, was called The Persian Gamble. So you can pick all three of them up because you ain't doing anything else. Uh, so well, exactly. That's one of those the, the funny things. I'll just say that uh, you don't even have to go to the bookstore, which is probably closed now, but you can either have it delivered from you know Amazon, Barnes Noble, or download it. Uh, that's yeah. the great thing about being cooped up right now. You can even, or you can listen on audio. Uh, audio. Fidel uh, reads yep. the uh, the Krem or the uh, the Jerusalem assassin. He does such an awesome job. You can just download it to your phone. Let somebody else read it to you. Yeah, yeah. So that's man, cool. well, great yeah. to be on. So again, guys. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. I appreciate it and. 
thank you for staying up or getting up early to talk to us um, <laughs> over there because I know it. that it's it's what like five like five fifteen in the morning your time. So um, thank you again. It is my pleasure. Happy to do it. All Thanks, right. guys. All right, you have a good one. We we'll talk so to much. you later. All right, bye bye. Thank you. <laughs>